your soul, rest in him, be still. Uh, know that where he's taking you, he is there. And he's, he's carrying you along. So let's go ahead and go to prayer again before we dive into God's word. Father, thank you. Uh, you have provided for us such strength in, in every situation. And as we look into your word, it, it brings us, to us a whole different perspective on life and the world than we get from the world and from those who, who say they know things in the world, and yet, unless they are uh, hearing you and seeking to follow your way, uh, they, they really don't understand that big picture. And so, as we uh, get into your word, uh, we know we need your strength. We need you to be in this in order to bring you the glory that that, that first song talked about in the, the preaching of your word. It, it has to be you that does it. And so I ask that from you now, uh, both in my, my words and in each one who hears it, uh, that you would use this time to help us to, to understand you better, more fully, that you would uh, change our lives, maybe even shake them up in some way through the, the things in your word that we, we see this morning. Uh, for your glory, for your honor, and, and according to your way. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As we've been working on these early parts of the Gospel of John, um, we, know, we know who Jesus is, uh, because in, in, the, in the very first chapter, John devotes a lot of space to just telling us right up front, he is God's revelation, ultimate revelation. He is the Word. He is God. He was with God from the beginning. He is the Creator. He is the King. He is the one who is predicted by all the prophets in the Old Testament to come, the, the prophet, the Messiah. John just lays all of those things out for us in chapter 1 now says, look at him as, as I tell you the life he lived about who this one is. And we've started off looking at some of those things that he did. We saw him go to a wedding. And when his mother comes and says, out of wine. Remember he says, well, it's not my time. What does that have to do with us? How does that fit into this picture? And in essence, he's saying, I'm here doing the Father's will. Understand that anything I do has to be according to his plan and his direction for my days. And then he miraculously turns large quantities of water into the finest wine, rescuing the family from, from embarrassment, uh, maybe even legal action because they didn't provide enough wine at the wedding. And yet he did it as a witness to Mary, to his disciples that were with him, to the servants who were pouring the water, that they would begin to see just exactly who he is. And last week we saw where Jesus switches from a very quiet miracle that actually it seems only a few people even knew happened, to action that was very bold in the temple. He saw the place that was, that was designated for the worship 
of the, of the nations. That anyone from anywhere could come into the court of the Gentiles outside the temple and pray and worship, and they'd set up a market there. They were selling sacrificial animals, a necessary thing to do, but not the right place for it. To have the, the, you know, the mooing of cows, the bleeding of sheep, the, the, the dickering back and forth over prices, and not only that, taking advantage of people in the price for that and for the, the, the fees that were, were charged for exchanging money for paying the temple tax. It, it was just a slap in the face to God, not an act of worship. And he drove all of those people out to say, I'm here about my father's business. This is my father's house. And you're totally violating the purpose for which it was built, that God would come and dwell among you, and you would worship him. As we wrapped up chapter 2, the last couple of, of verses, verses 23 through 25, we, we did talk about last week, but we're going we're to stop and, and focus on those. I don't, I don't want to dive into chapter 3 this week and be gone for two weeks. And there's some nuggets here in those last last verses, that help us to, to maybe gain some perspective that will help us as we move on through John. And it says, now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing, but Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. And John uses this play on words. He said, there were many believing and trusting themselves to Jesus' name. But it says, but Jesus was not entrusting himself, the same, same word used in both those cases, to them. In other words, they weren't going to be the ones who ran the show, so to speak. It wasn't going to be their agenda that would drive what he did and his ministry over the coming years. And the reason John gives us, well, he knew what was in man. And I want us to just consider this morning, what was it that Jesus knows is in man, that he said, no, I'm not going to entrust myself to what your plan is. And I want you to want to notice, first of all, that when he says what was in man, and, and, and we would pick this up, I think, anyway, but, but particularly in the Greek, that word for man is not for talking about a male person, but it's talking about mankind. It's talking about humanity. It says Jesus knew what was in humanity. And not only that, but it, it's uh, when it says what was in man, it reminds us of John 1.1, where it said, in the beginning was the Word, and the tense of that means in the past, in a continuing way, Jesus was the Word. So it points back to what He always has been. When, and here it says, when Jesus knew what was in man, He says, here's, here's, here's the record of humanity. Jesus knew what humanity, and therefore what each of us who are within humanity, 
are like, what our character is, what's deep down inside of us. And that's emphasized as well by the fact that he says he knew all men. So it's not just the people on this side of the church, right? It's not just the people in that town or that country, but it's all of humanity. It's something that is true throughout all of us. So it's what has been going on. And how did he know this? Well, of course, John told us up front that Jesus is and always has been God, right? And it, but in his humanity, Jesus chose to rely on his Father and the Holy Spirit to know things. And so he knew what was in man from, from all of those, those perfect ways of knowing. So there, there's a, a informational knowledge, you could say. He understood the truth that humanity has fallen and sinful, right? He had the right source to have the right understanding. But the word know used in this, in this verse as well gives a little bit other angle because it, it leans towards a knowledge that isn't just facts that are known, but it speaks more of experiential knowledge. See, because Jesus had lived for 30 years as a man in the midst of humanity, in the midst of a world of sinners. And so Jesus knew through that what we are like, up close and personal. Now just take a moment to think about what what it would have been like as a sinless human being to live in close personal contact with a lot of sinners. Someone with a, a whose perspective isn't skewed by ever having chosen different than God. Whose perspective wasn't ever wrong because he said, well, my way is better than God's way. Now think about living with people who do that on a regular, daily basis. Jesus experientially knew what we're like with the right perspective. Because even when we recognize it in each other or even in ourselves, our perspective still isn't right. Jesus knew perfectly, knew experientially what we are. So what is it that makes us, humanity, people, untrustworthy? Well, let's go back to some of the basics. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. How did we end up in this this mess to begin with, right? In the garden, Satan comes, tempting Eve. One thing, one thing God said, don't do. Don't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And who comes on the scene but Satan in the form of a serpent, right? And what what is, where where does he hit? What what is it that he wants to accomplish? He says in verse 5, For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will, what? Be like God, knowing good and evil. So here's a truth. comes out of the scriptures that were there in Jesus' day and available. It had been around for centuries. Satan painted a picture of being master over what is good and evil as a place of power to be desired. He says, don't you want to be the judge? Don't you want to know what good and evil is? Don't you want that place that God has? 
See, the desires of the devil's heart were presented as the ideal. Because that's what he wanted, right? He wanted to be God. He wanted God's place. So when Adam chose their own way instead of God's, they permanently changed the perspective that they had of the world for themselves and for every one of their offspring. Suddenly, reality was skewed. Now there would always be a personal evaluation of everything, regardless of what God stated clearly. Now we would act like God ourselves whenever we heard a truth given. Oh, well, what do I think about that? Rather than, oh, I know God and his great love for me and his wisdom and the fact that he designed it all and has a perfect plan, I'm in. Now, from that point on, it's, well, what do I think about what God said? Let me evaluate. Let me think it through and see if I judge what God has said to be worthy of my acceptance and my action. That's what's in humanity. Therefore, that's what's in each one of us. That's death. That's death. When we think we can take the place of the life giver because we don't have life in ourselves. It gives us a problem with our heart. Turn with me to Jeremiah 17, verses 5 through 10. Jeremiah 17, verses 5 through 10. And here he's, Jeremiah is talking, as he often does in this book, about the sins of, of mankind, or of Judah, actually. That's the, the nation that he's, that he's, he's uh, preaching against, that he's warning, that he's telling the trouble that they're in because of their sin. And he, and he starts out with a contrast. First he, get, he says, Here, here's the curse you bring on yourself through your sin. Then he tells them, here's the blessing that you can have if you trust God. And then he gives a diagnosis of the human heart. So beginning in verse 5, he says, Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert, and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. She says here, you can trust in mankind. You can trust in your own strength to get you through, and that could be your mental ability or your physical strength or, or whatever else. But it brings on you a curse, a curse of want, a curse of not even understanding when good things are coming. It skews your understanding of the world. Verse 7, he says, you have, a, you have another option. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by, by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in the year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. So here's, here's your other option. 
Trust. And trust yourself to God. Draw your strength, your life from Him. And you're like that tree that year in, year out, doesn't matter if there's lots of rain or no rain, if it stays dry for years, it's by the stream, it's by the source of life, draws for itself life and produces fruit. It produces what is good. Take your choice. But then he warns, don't even in considering that think that you can be the judge. He says, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick, or your version might say desperately wicked. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. So through Jeremiah, God says, recognize the human heart starts off being deceived and deceiving. That's the nature of it. So don't think that you, in your own wisdom, can, can make these judgments about right and wrong without me coming in and being a part of that, without my word, without my truth, because it says, I am the one. I search the heart. I test the mind. So come to me to know what is good and right and what way to go. See, it's the heart. What's going on in the heart of humanity? Well, without God's solution, without Christ coming to pay for sin, without what he'll tell Nicodemus in chapter 3, a new birth, becoming brand new person, you can, you can trust in yourself to fool yourself. You can trust yourself to tell yourself lies that will get you what you want. And we'll get into that a little bit more as we go. But God is the only one who can see clearly what is in us, and Jesus saw this. So what happens is, because our heart is like that, it's our desires that rule, right? Uh, there are things we want. We're, we're, we're built to want things. We're really made originally to, to want ultimate things, to want God and, and, and who He is and, and know Him. And all of the blessings that flow from that. But since the fall, we've been wrapped up in the extra blessings. We worship those. And we, we pursue those. And as Jesus was beginning his ministry, and as, as evidence mounted that he was the Messiah, that he was the promised king, the savior of Israel and of the world, people had all kinds of expected outcomes for him. Everybody had their idea of what it was Jesus should be, what he should do, what he should bring in, what benefits they should get from Jesus. And these expectations, by the way, are more are, are, and, and more are still active among the descendants of Adam, you and me. Recognize because our hearts are what Jeremiah described. We have expectations of Jesus. There are things we expect to get out of Jesus. There are things we expect Jesus to do, not because that's why he came or that was God's plan, but because we have things we want. And so we look to Jesus and say, Jesus, why don't you give me this? Jesus, why don't you do that? Why don't you fix this? 
And that's what Jesus was facing as he came in to minister in his earthly life. So let's just look at a few of those desires that create expectations that Jesus was saying, I know what's going on in the hearts of men. I won't commit myself to them in their way. I will go the Father's way. Some people were expecting an earthly kingdom. And uh, there's a list of of scriptures there. I'm not going to read through all of those. But some of the ones that we hear the most about was his own disciples. They're like, Lord, is it now that you're going to bring in the kingdom? But even, even the Pharisees one time asked him, So when are you going to bring in the kingdom? They were looking for an earthly kingdom. They were looking for the the throwing off of, of these empires that had ruled them for centuries. They were looking for the good old days of David and Solomon and even some of the other kings that were good. They wanted Jesus to bring it in now for their own benefit. It wasn't a matter of, well, Lord, what's, what's best for people of Israel. What's best for the world? What should happen now? It's no. when are you going to bring in the kingdom, Jesus? It's here now, right? Tell us, are you the, the anointed one, the Messiah? And I think we have to look at that for ourselves, too. I think in our, our, our own country, there's, there's some desires that aren't, aren't bad desires, but are we wanting God to establish an earthly kingdom or an earthly republic more than we want him for his own sake? I think it's a great temptation in the American American Christianity to want the kingdom now and want it to look like our version of the good old days. And wanting what is best for our nation isn't bad. Wanting to see it follow biblical principles is a good desire. but it can't be what we live for. And we have to consider God's big picture understanding of everything in that. The problem with putting country first is that we are citizens of another country. We are aliens in this world. We are passing through, and our goal is not to establish earthly nations or earthly kingdoms, but ultimately to glorify glorify our king. And so we should seek, yes, the good of all peoples, all nations, but hope isn't in what will be built by man. It isn't in earthly systems, it isn't in earthly documents or philosophies. Our hope is in Christ, who came to be, and he is the king of Israel. He is the one who is over all. All authority has been given to him in heaven and earth, right? And yet, his big overall plan may or may not fit in with our plans for the politics of our nation, for the changes of when those things have to be made. There were other people who wanted to gain power. Um, And and we find this right in the middle of his own disciples. And go go ahead and turn with me to Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 37. Mark 9, 33 through 37. It says, They came to Capernaum, 
And when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called to the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last, and last of all, and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. There's that, that desire even within his disciples. Oh, we're, we're following the Messiah. They made those declarations early on, as we saw in John, right? Uh, we're following the king. And if we're following the king, and we're close to him, and he's called us to come and walk with him, then guess we're going we're to get some good spots of power, of influence. But not only that, but which one of us is actually the greatest among us all? It's got to be one of us, because here we're the ones closest to him, right? Uh, their heart wasn't on so much, I need to know Jesus, but is Jesus going to provide for me earthly power? If you turn over then to Luke twenty-two twenty-four. It's interesting, this is the, the night that Jesus would be betrayed, be arrested. Uh, this is the night when he, he you know, shared the Lord's table with them the first time. This is the night when right before this verse, he told them one of them is going to, deny, is going to, to betray him. And they're all looking around, well, who could it be? Who could it be? And in Luke's gospel, he just flows right from, oh, well, who, who, who is it that could do that to, but not who's going to betray him. But, but really the question is, which one of us is the greatest? Eh? Which one of us is, is the best? Which one of us is going to get the power? Obviously, it's not the betrayer, but their, their heart was focused, was deceived on thinking that what this was all really about was their status and who they were going to be in their own eyes. And so they discussed it. They argued about it. And so it reminds us, even as believers, we need to be careful. It's so easy to grab things like that and live for the benefits of knowing Jesus, not for Jesus himself, for knowing him and therefore knowing what his way is knowing that he, he's the greatest, and where he puts us, in, as far as positions of influence or opportunity or blessing, well, that's up to him. And as we saw in the adult Sunday school class, that place of great blessing may be in being persecuted for his namesake, not in ruling over people or having wide influence. There were other people who thought they had power, and they wanted to preserve their power, right? And so their whole relationship with Jesus was one of, well, how do I keep this power I think I have? And we actually looked at this verse last week, but let's look at it again. John 11, verse 48. Uh, following Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, this was the reaction of those who thought they had power. 
says, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. See, as they perceived Jesus and, and who he claimed to be, they didn't see him as more powerful than Rome. They didn't see him as God, the creator. They said, somebody get this guy in line because he's going to mess up this arrangement we have with the Roman government. He's going to mess up our, our place where we can be over people and get the things we want and have the things that we want and be looked up to and honored by the people. Jesus knew what was in the hearts of men. And so moving forward, he had to consider that in everything that he did and everything that he said because there were people just wanting to preserve their position and they lost so much by holding on to so little. And that happens to us so quickly as sinners, doesn't it? We want what we think we have, and we miss what he wants for us that is so much better. We're grabbing a hold of those little toys while he intends to share the world with us. So many people just wanted the benefits that came from being with Jesus. And so often that's our, our issue too, right? We want Jesus for what we can get. It's nothing new. But go, go with me again to John chapter 6, verse 2. Why was this crowd following him at this point? It says, a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Here's the, here's the one who can fix all of our physical ailments. He can make us well. He can make us to be able to see, make us to be able to hear, make us to be able to, to feel good again. That the ravages of this world, he can knock them back. He can get rid of them for us. And if you continue on down and look at verse 26, here are Jesus' words to them after he's fed a, a huge crowd of thousands of people. Jesus answered and said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs. And the purpose of signs was are to point to someone else, right? The purpose of the signs that Jesus did were to point to him as the Messiah, as the one who had been promised. But he says, you don't seek me because you're saying, oh, that's where the signs pointed. but because you ate the loaves and were filled. You just want a free, free meal. You want someone who can keep giving you food. They didn't want Jesus for Jesus. They wanted the things Jesus could give them. And jump ahead as well to chapter 12, verses 17 and 18. Here, again, after he had raised Lazarus from the dead, it said, So the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify him. For this reason, also the people went and met him, because they heard that he had performed this sign. Great fear is death, right? We're told in, in the New Testament, that in Hebrews, that that Satan uses the fear of death to manipulate people, to get them to do what they want. 
They'd heard this man actually raised a man from the dead who'd been dead for four days. Who has ever heard of such a thing? They're like, oh, we want that man to do that for us. Just think how that could transform our efforts to be an independent country. Just think how that would take away the fear that we have of disease, an accident, and all of those things. Let's go get this man who can take the fear of death away. And it was true, but they didn't want it the way Jesus was going to give it. They wanted it on demand. So often, we come to Jesus for those benefits, those things we think he will give us. So when he sometimes wisely withholds things from us that we think we ought to have, when he wisely keeps things from us that in the moment, in the context, would not be good for us, when he keeps us from things that simply are bad for us, oftentimes we get disillusioned, don't we? Well, Jesus didn't come through and give me what I wanted. We question his wisdom. We think, well, how could he not do that for me? Doesn't he know? And fill in the blank what it is we think we know better than him, right? In fact, Judas might be the most dramatic example of this we have in the Bible here. We don't know for sure all that Judas came for, but we know that he stole from the money that he was entrusted with from the group. Seems as though he was interested in Jesus coming in and, and, and being the ruler now over a, a, an earthly kingdom. And when he was disillusioned, what did he do? Even getting his 30 pieces of silver didn't help. And he realized he wasn't getting what he wanted. And he went and hanged himself. Because he, he didn't want Jesus for Jesus. He wanted Jesus for what Jesus could give him. And so as Jesus does ministry, and as it's recorded for us here in the Gospel of John, Jesus continually had to have the Father's will and plan on his mind and heart because everyone else wanted to impose a plan that got them what they thought that they wanted rather than what's truly best according to God. Some people simply wanted an add-on God. Uh, Luke 18, 18 through 27 should be familiar, I think, to most all of you. <clears throat> but we have the rich young ruler. Comes and says, well, how can I have eternal life? You remember Jesus says, well, keep the commandments. Oh, I've kept all those from my youth up. Well, then go sell everything you have and give to the poor. See, this man, really what he wanted from Jesus wasn't Jesus' way of salvation. What he wanted was Jesus to say, oh, you, you really are a good man. Of course you have eternal life. And instead, Jesus drew out from his own heart that he was holding on to his possessions in such a way that that was more important to him than God. That was more important than God's way And as that passage ends up, it talks about God being able to do the things that are impossible with man. See, Jesus put him in a place where he realized in his own strength that it was impossible for him to get himself into heaven. It was impossible for him to give himself eternal life. This one who thought he was a, a, 
a good lawkeeper. This one who you would think any religious leader would say, oh, I've got to recruit this one. He'll be so good for my, my growing body of followers. And Jesus tore down all that this man was living for and thought was benefiting him before God because he needed to know that all of that wasn't doing him a bit of good. The only thing that would bring him into a right relationship with God would be to receive the gift that he was going to offer. But he had to follow God through faith to get to being able to receive that gift of forgiveness from Jesus. That's in humanity too, isn't it? And Jesus came to seek people who have that issue in their hearts, but not to have them direct what he was doing. Sometimes we have to stop and ask, are we like this man? Do we just want Jesus as an add-on? Do we have some sort of a cultural religion that we live by? Some sort of a code that we've made up in our own mind about, well, here, here's, here's the things I need to do, and then I'll be good, but let me add Jesus on just to legitimize it all. Let me just tack Jesus on, and he'll make it all good. And Jesus says, no, you've got to tear all that down to the very bottom until it's gone. Because what Jesus has is a radically different way. That's where we're going to head when we get to chapter 3. We'll see Jesus address the one man who should have it all together, Nicodemus. He's someone he calls the teacher of Israel. You're the teacher of Israel. Don't you even know the most basic spiritual truths? And Jesus tells him he basically has to throw all that away. All that he is and has become according to religious standards. And it says, you have to be born again. You have to become like a little baby. You have to be given brand new life in order to have what God wants for you. He has to start all over, and he's not a young man. We'll see that he says, how can a man be born again when he is old? In other words, how can, how can I give all that up and start fresh? But it's, that's the, the, the radical and demanding kind of faith Jesus will ask him to have in chapter 3. And that's where Paul, the apostle, had to go, right? Uh, Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. He had to come to that point. And he lists in the verses right before that all of the, the wonderful religious things that he'd done. He'd had, he had them all lined up, even stuff that his parents had to do for him. He says, I've got that in my bag of good stuff. But then he says in verses 7 through 9, sorry, get to the right chapter here. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing, not, surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God, on the basis of faith. So it can't be an add-on. It's like, scrap it all. 
All those things that were good, I, I considered them against me. I considered them a problem for me having a relationship with God. I had to come and have a righteousness that came as a gift from God. And so Jesus walks among us in this world, and we'll see that as we progress through John. But even as he walks among us as our Savior, it's all about his Father's will. Let's turn to me one more passage, John chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. It says, therefore, Jesus answered it and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. It's kind of what the end of chapter 2 and John's getting at, but here he says, whatever the Father's doing, that's what I'm doing. In becoming a man, he said, "I'm, I'm totally reliant on him. I'm always in communication with my Father. I'm following the direction of the Spirit, but it's really all simply about what the Father is doing. And so he didn't turn himself over to any group of people, not to the Pharisees, not to the Sadducees, not to the people who were after a a government compromise, the Hellenists, not even to his own mother, not to the people who said they believed in him after they saw the signs. No, I'm on on a one-track mission here. It's the track that my Father shows me what is right, and that's also what is going to be right for you. So as we continue through John, Jesus will show himself a sinless human being to be completely dependent on the Father. This will leave him misunderstood, rejected, rebuked by one of his followers, Peter, and hated by many. And he continued in this way, though, because that is what is best at whatever cost. That's how we as human beings were created to function from the very beginning. Simply doing the will of the Father and trusting Him for what is good. You see, we don't become good enough or strong enough to function independently, even in Christ. We can never function independently, right? It's not as though, oh, well, got my relationship with Jesus so good, I'm going to take this one on my own. No, that's when you crash and burn, right? That's when things go downhill. We're designed to function as an extension of what the Father is doing. Even as believers, we struggle with yielding control in that, don't we? I know I do. That's the way of living for what is best, what is truly joyful. Jesus as we continue on through the gospel. He'll often surprise us with his gentle compassion or with words and actions that seem harsh and strong. And the reason that we're surprised is that that we are those who are limited 
in our understanding, in our holiness, in our love. Jesus' words and actions will seem strange because he is seeing everything from a sinless point of view and according to the perfect plan, the perfect will of the Father. So what he's going to be doing in these chapters we get to is going to give us an opportunity to, to take apart what we think we know and know it more clearly and understand God's way more fully. So I urge you, to, to as we move ahead in John, please be shocked by what Jesus does. Please let it rattle what you think you know. Let it change what you think you should do. Because Jesus is moving into our world, a world where our view is always skewed, right? It's always limited because we're finite. He comes in as the perfect sinless one following God's plan perfectly. It ought to rattle us if it doesn't. Maybe we've gotten, gotten to the point where we're really not paying attention. We're not really listening. We're not seeking after him in the way that we should be. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus that uh, he would, would come and, and would live and would, would be so devoted to doing things the way that you have for him. And I pray that, that you would shake us as we look at the rest of this book, uh, that you would uh, direct us to, to how we can uncover things that don't match up with, with what the Father wants, with what you want. And show us your, your mercy and grace in that. Thank you for your compassion. Uh, because without that, we wouldn't be able to handle that. And so we look forward to, to what you will do, how you will gently mold and, and shape us, but also how you will bring us to an abrupt halt where we're involved in things that are, are wrong, understanding things incorrectly, or harming ourselves or others through the way we, we are thinking and doing. Thank you that there is so much hope for those who have entrusted themselves to Jesus and, and entered into that new life. Thank you for giving it. In Jesus' name, amen.